Well, we're looking at the principles of prayer in First uh, Timothy chapter two, one to eight, and the idea again is that it's always always important to have a sense of context when you look at God's word. In chapter one, we learned about false teachers that were misleading the church. We learned about Christ coming to the world to save sinners, of whom the apostle Paul said, "I am chief." We learned about the fact of the danger of shipwreck in your Christian faith, and then he starts the First Timothy with an urgent statement based on what he's already said in the first chapter as he addresses this letter to Timothy and to the church at Ephesus. Uh, what's he urging us to do? Well, in chapter 2, verse 1, he says this, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone. So the first thing he challenges the local church on is the primacy of prayer. And folks, that's the hardest thing we have to do in our Christian lives. Because the one meeting that is the least attended in every church, it's the one thing that people give up on the most. That's prayer. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, I sometimes say, well, you know, it's really important for us as a congregation to spend time in prayer. And sometimes, well, people, I, I pray on my own. I say, well, that's good. I'm glad you pray on your own. But most of the times, if you're looking at the New Testament, you see the context of a church being called to what I call corporate prayer. And I sometimes say, well, hey, can you make it to prayer time or prayer meeting? Uh, and I hear all kinds of things. So now sometimes we at our church have pizza and prayer. I thought, well, okay, let's bribe them with pizza. Uh, we got eight people out. <laughs> Didn't quite work. Maybe it was the wrong food. I don't know. But yet, inbounds emphasized the need for ministry prayer within the church when he wrote, it, it may be laid down as an axiom that God needs, first of all, leaders in the church who will be first in prayer, men with whom prayer is habitual and characteristic, men who know the primacy of prayer. We've all heard the statement, you know, without me, Jesus Christ speaking, you, you can do nothing from John's Gospel, chapter 15. But even more than the habit of prayer, and more than prayer being a characteristic of them, church leaders are to be men whose lives are characterized by prayer. Don't say, I want to be a leader, I never show up for prayer, ever. When prayer is not a priority in your life, you're not cut out to be a leader in a church. And I saw you say, what do you mean by that, Pastor? It's, it's true. As a pastor, if I'm not committed to prayer, I should not be leading this church. Because God puts the primacy of prayer at top shelf. For many Christians, prayer is mysterious, sometimes puzzling, sometimes difficult to understand. It's a routine sometimes before meals and bedtimes and for safety when traveling or when in crises. Sometimes prayer gets answered and we wonder, oh, how did that happen? <laughs> sort of like a story in the New Testament where, the, where Peter was in prison in, in jail and the church was praying for him to be released. And lo and behold, without going through the whole story, Peter gets released. And he comes to the door and knocks and says, let me in. And Rhoda comes to the door and it's the, said, who is it? It's Peter. And she doesn't believe him. She thinks, and when she goes back to tell the prayer meeting, because they're all praying for Peter's release, hey, guess what? It's Peter knocking the door. It's his spirit. He's already died. It can't be. But did God answer prayer? So he keeps beating on the door until finally they let him in, and they're all in shock that their prayers have been answered. And so we oftentimes get used to a one-sided conversation with God and never expect much back. 
Truth is, God doesn't call us to empty practices in the Christian life. We're not challenged by God to pray without results or purpose. So we're challenged to pray, intercede, and give thanks. We need to pay attention because God puts a priority on it. And Jesus, every day before he got up, well, before the rest of the disciples got up, he said he would go off to a place, a solitary place, and he would what? He'd pray. To the point where the disciples actually came up to say, Lord, would you teach us to pray? Now the thing is, they were steeped in Judaism, and they'd been taught prayer, but they knew something. there was something really unique about the way Jesus prayed. They said, we want to pray like you do. Ever had anybody ask you, hey, I'd like to learn to pray like you do? So one of the habitual prayers that I learned as a child, nothing wrong with it. Remember this one? Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray thee, Lord, my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray thee, Lord, my soul to take. And God bless, blah, 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 blah. You know, I had all the end. People are like, what do you mean if I should die? Take my soul, Lord. Like, but it was a prayer that I prayed. It was, it was a learned, and it was a prayer that I learned. And then, but then as I grew in my Christian walk, I would listen to different other people pray. Oh, Lord, thou that rendest the heavens, blessed be the you know, King James prayer warrior. You ever hear those kind of guys? And I remember thinking to myself, I'll never be able to pray like that. And I, I just felt like they were so heavenly minded. Somebody said, uh, how much earthly good? That's another story. And then I heard some people that had just gotten saved, accepted Christ their Savior, and just a heartfelt prayer that was just so honest and real. I thought, oh, I kind of like that. But we learn in corporate prayer how to pray by listening to others as well as reading what Scripture says. And yet, so we're challenged to pray, intercede, give thanks, pay attention. Prayer does make a difference, but its importance is often overlooked. As I said, the least attended meeting in any church as prayer meeting. That's why they, a lot of churches don't have it anymore. Prayer is one of the most powerful weapons God gives us. I'm looking forward to 2019. It's never been more important for the people in this church to give themselves to corporate prayer. Well, how are we to pray then? Well, you urge requests in this passage. That means coming before God on the basis of certain needs. And I hear that oftentimes Sunday morning with the eight people that were here this morning to pray. And we have this long list of needs. He said, bring requests. Bring your needs to God. It has to do with expressing a need or a want. It involves asking for, seeking for, even begging God. And oftentimes we pray for a lot of people in this church that have friends that ask us to pray for them. Uh, the big C word, cancer. So requests are prayers to God for what we do not have. That's as he urges intercessions, prayers, that God would intervene on someone's behalf. Lord, I want to intercede today on behalf of, you name the person's name. He said, well, I'll pray for this, what's going on in their life. And so then he urges thanksgiving, praise for what God is doing. That's the one place, that's the one place I think we really fall flat on. We ask, God, God, give me, give me, give me, Lord, help so and so. But what about the giving of thanks? We're challenged in Scripture to give thanks in all things. Uh, the question is, do you pray for all men? Do you pray for the person in the ambulance as it speeds by you? Or you pass a wreck on the highway, do you pray for the first responders and for the people that are involved in that accident? 
You pray for the guy at work next to you. You pray for the victims of disasters that are on the news in front of you. Oh, Lord, I need to pray for the people in Venezuela. I need to pray for the people in Haiti. To understand why some would be easy to pray for and others hard, we have to look at the next verse. It says in 1 Timothy 2.2, 2, he said, Pray to, for kings, all those in authority, that we may live peaceable and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Lance did a great job there means we ought to pray for politicians, premiers, prime ministers, mayors, counselors, landlords, police. Yes, pray for your police officers and your firefighters. There's something in our sinful nature so how that somehow rebels against authority. We resent it. We rebel against it. And so he's urging people to be holistic in their approach to prayer. That's the shape our prayers need to take when we pray. They're the important facts of a full prayer life. But do you pray in this manner, prayer in this manner? Maybe you're maybe always making entreaties for other people in situations. That's needed. That's great. But you give God thanks for what you already have and start counting your blessings. Maybe you're always praying, speaking reverently to God. That's great. But do you have a familiar intimacy with him as your friend? And he's your Abba your father, your daddy, who likes to hear what's going on in your life. He said, well, he already knows. Yeah, but he wants to hear your voice. Sort of like, you know, a child. Do I call my mom every week? Yeah, I do. Every Monday morning on the way into work. Yes, I uh, turn the, and I talk to her, and sometimes I'm in the parking lot for about five or ten minutes still, and she's talking and filling me in on her week. What's going on? And I do that. It's a habit I have every week. I always make sure I make that phone call. Talk to mom, see what's happening in her life, see what's going on, and pray for her. And that's something I just do habitually. And do I enjoy it? Always, always interesting to find out what's going on. And sometimes it's just the norm. But it's always keeping in touch, keeping that communication going. Why? Because it's important to the relationship. If my relationship with God is what I say it is, then it should be indicative through our prayer life. So let's make sure our prayer lives are complete with these four things. Our prayer lives are going to be made on behalf of all men. Do you pray for yourself more than for others? And the others you pray for, who are they? Your close friends, your family? One of the reasons the early church was persecuted was because within the, the Roman Empire considered Christians to be trouble. Because Christians inevitably stopped worshiping and praying to the many pagan gods the Romans feared that this was the cause of every little trouble, earthquake, famine, and plague. Tacitus, the Roman historian, actually wrote an, a historical document as to what happened when Nero, when Rome burned. And so because Nero couldn't blame it on what, didn't want the, it to be laid at his feet, he blamed the Christians. And so the Christians at that point became uh, burning symbols all throughout the nation. How do I mean that? Well, on his way to his garden, he would take Christians, he had them dipped in animal fat or wax, then tied to a pole, he would light them, each one, so he could find his way through his garden at night. That was one of the things. And they were tortured for their faith. They were thrown into, they were taken and put in the hide skins of animals, and they would sew them tight, throw them into the amphitheater and for blood sport. And it was during this time that one of the church fathers wrote a letter to the emperor to make a case for the persecution to stop because he told the emperor that 
Christians weren't against the government. In fact, they were praying for the government as Paul had commanded them here. But the thing is, I thought, could you imagine? The Apostle Paul's telling the believers, pray for Nero. Really? He's our enemy. You know what he does to us? But we're challenged to pray for him? Do you pray for our Prime Minister Justin Trudeau for his salvation? Do you pray for our Premier Doug Ford? Do you pray for our Mayor Aldo DiCarlo? Those are all individuals that need God's wisdom in their situation. See, I think sometimes when you, when you look at the situation on the media, and, and Lance addressed that a bit, there's a lot of negativity out there. And as Christians, what you can do is you can get angry. You can get mad. You can vote. There's a lot of things you can do. But you got to remember one thing, folks. As you get mad and get angry, you know, say, well, I, I, really, I really would like this world to be a nicer place to live in. We all agree? But folks, this world is not our home. Do you hear me? It's not our home. Yes, it's nice to have a nice, peaceful life and to lead a life without threat of issues and circumstances. But as you see what's happening in our media and what's happening around the world, what it should do is to drive you to your knees and say, God, you're in charge. You allowed this for a reason. And through the circumstances that we find happening in our world, may people be driven to reach out and be saved through Jesus Christ. Because my friends, even if Trudeau loses the election this fall, and we bring in another government, is it really going to fix the problems in our country? What's the answer, folks? Uh, you know, they get rid of Trump. Is that going to fix America? No. If they bring, you know, a military coup into Venezuela to change what's happening there, and they get rid of the president that's there, is that going to change Venezuela? Men will always be men. But a man who knows Jesus Christ makes a difference. And that's why we as believers need to be praying for the salvation of our politicians, that God... And the reason you say, well, I want them to get saved so that we can have a nice world to live in. That's kind of selfish, isn't it? I need to pray that they come to a saving knowledge of Christ so that Christ will be manifest in their lives. The New Testament church grew the greatest during the reign of Nero and when the church is being persecuted, it grew like never, ever before. Because when the church is persecuted, when the fires of persecution hit the church, people get real about their faith. But everybody's loving Jesus. Nobody's getting really whipped up about sharing their faith. Everything's pretty cool. I'm enjoying my life. Everything's really relaxed. But in times of persecution, when the fires of persecution hit the New Testament church, that's when the church just spread and went all like wildfire because their only hope was in Christ, not in the governments around them. So we need to pray for our boss at work, for our husband, for our wife, for your elders, your Sunday school teachers, our tech team, worship team, greeted churches. That's a lot of praying. Uh-huh. Are you asking God to meet the needs of your neighbors, to bless them so they might come to a saving knowledge of Christ? Yeah, the issue is, too, when we pray for these people, we need to really realize that we don't submit to the authorities 
of the leadership and the governments around us also, we bring judgment down on our heads. The book of Romans says very clearly in Romans 13, 1 and 2, everyone, listen to this, must submit himself to the governing authorities for there's no authority except that which God has established. So you got to be kidding. Consequently, he who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted and for those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Now let me just make a point of clarity here. What I'm clear is this. When the government and those in institutions challenge us to break and disobey the Word of God, the Word of God rules with primacy and is supreme. When the government says abortion is okay, the government is wrong. God's Word that says that we need to preserve human life. Abortion is a sin against God, against humanity. And we can go on. But yet, God has placed people in authority over us and we're to submit to their leadership in all areas where they do not violate the Word of God. Remember when Paul was writing these things, there was not a single Christian ruler in the entire world. The Roman government, there was, there, there was, he was in subjection to, was killing all Christians who refused to say, Caesar is Lord. Don't say Caesar is Lord, you don't bow, guess what, you're dead. He's reading, writing this about A.D. 63, and the emperor that was that time was, of course, Nero. Persecuted the church unbelievably. And yet, during that persecution, I said, more people turned to Christ. Why did they turn to Christ during this great time of persecution? Because they saw how the lives of Christians were so radically different from the rest of the world. So even though these people were being tortured at the stake, burned alive, used as bait in the amphitheater in Rome, the Roman Colosseum, they watched how these people died and the way they did it. And people said, they have something we don't have. And by that, they were drawn to Christianity. And yet, I'd like to point out something else. God's plan is that we submit to authority even when it's sometimes unbearably difficult. So he said, well, what if the prime minister's ungodly believers submit to his authority? What if my husband makes stupid decisions? That's kind of bringing it home. Submit to his authority where it does not violate the Word of God. What if my teacher gives me too much homework? Submit to her authority and do the work. God's desire for our lives is tranquility, quietness, godliness, and dignity is how we ought to live our Christian lives. What does it have to do with praying for people over us in authority? That explains the rest of Romans. Romans 13, 3-7 says this, For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. If you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority, then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. If you do wrong, he be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant and agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it's necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of the possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is why you pay taxes for the authorities are God's servants, who give their full time to governing. Give everything that you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. We're to live righteous, godless, godly lives so that people see that Christ lives in and through us. Let's move on to 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4. It says, this is good, and it pleases God our Savior, 
who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Why? Because 2 Peter 3.9 says this, not wanting anyone to perish, for everyone to come to repentance. So Paul continues pressing the gospel message. He says, we really need to pray for those who are lost. But my challenge to you today is that I think a lot of people think people aren't lost. And oftentimes they look around and say, well, they live good lives. They, you know, they live decent lives. They drive a nice car. They have a nice home. Everything's really good in their lives. We're not really gripped with the fact that people that do not know Christ are lost. And yet God's desire is that the whole world will be saved. Is that your desire as well? Do you have the same passion for those who are lost like Jesus Christ? Do you really care about them? Do you give a rip? When you drive through your neighborhood, do you, do you pray for those who are lost? Do you pray for your neighbors who need Christ? I'm sure that somebody prayed for you so that you would come to a saving knowledge of Christ. Someone shared with you your need that you needed to put your faith and trust in Christ. And as a result, you did respond or you wouldn't be here today. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6 says this, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. The only way to get through to God is what? Through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. People say, well, is there any other way? No, there is only one way. In Romans 3.23, we read, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone is in need of salvation. Romans 6.23 said, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is still the greatest message that the world needs to hear today. When I talk with people on the streets, whether it's having a burger at Mealtime Express or Tim Hortons talking to people, there are definitely a lot of concerns about what's happening in the world because as they watch what's happening on, through the media, whether it's on their TV sets or on the Internet, wherever they're watching, it's a doom and gloom message, is it not? And some people say, well, I just don't want to watch it anymore. I'm just getting sick of it. Well, turning it off doesn't change it. And yet the message of the gospel is the greatest message for mankind. But I sometimes wonder, do we really grasp a hold that it's really the greatest message? How excited are you to share your testimony with those that know not Christ? It says he's a mediator. It's one who brings parties together who are out of communication that may be alienated, estranged. He's the only mediator. There's other churches that talk about that there's other mediators. No, there's only one mediator between God and man, that's Jesus Christ, who gave up his life in exchange for us. He paid a debt that we didn't know because he, we owed a debt that we couldn't pay. And so, you see, Moses was a mediator and an arbitrator between God and Israel. And so every time God wanted to speak to Israel, he would say, Moses, I need to have a chat with you. And he would go off to a tent, and Joshua would walk with him, and he would talk to him. And when he came out of the tent, he would just be glowing. And the people knew he had spent, and then they would wait to hear what God was going to say through Moses to the people. But the New Testament says that Jesus Christ is the only mediator who speaks for what God says. 1 Timothy 2, 7, 8 says, And for this purpose, the apostle Paul said, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying and a teacher of the truth faith to the Gentiles. I want men everywhere 
to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. That was the message of Paul. I want to make clear the message of Christ. And men are to be the model and lead in the exercise of prayer. It says, with holy hands lifted up. If you go to the Jewish nation today and you watch the Jews by the Wailing Wall, you see men with their black hats on and with their curly beards, but they're going like this and they're raising their hands as they pray and talk to God with their hands open, saying, God, speak to me. I know for some of you guys, it's a little tough putting the hand up because it kind of feels weird and awkward. Are you there? I, I did that for a while myself. I really struggled with raising my hands and talking to God because I'm thinking, like, what are people going to think? He's gone charismatic. He's going weird. And being from a staunch Dutch background, the only kind of movement I ever had when a real good song was going on was my big toe going up and down. No movement happening here, man. Keep it under control, brother. Don't lose it. But the more I studied scripture, the more I realized that this old staunch Dutchman needs to have a little more liberty in showing his praise and honor to God. And I read about that. Hands lifted upward. It was holy. It was to do it in honor of God and who he is. A lot of times the Hebrew word praise in the New Test in the Old Testament means to lift one's hands in praise. Oh. It's actually quite biblical. And the idea is that Paul wants men to go pray in public and in church to be men whose lives are above reproach, lives that everyone recognizes these are good lives. These are men that pray. They really pray. And again, the emphasis was he was challenging the men at this point that there's nothing wrong with women praying and, and hearing the message that God is saying to them that you need to be women of prayer as well. He said you do without anger or disputing. Paul's primary point is not the posture of the body, but the posture of the heart. He says in Matthew 5, 23 and 24, he says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother is something against you, leave your gift in front of the altar. First go be reconciled to your brother and then go offer your gift as they did at that point. That was Christ speaking. And so the idea there again is that when we're people of prayer, it's just, it's something that folks is going to take us some work. It's going to take effort. Am I glad that we have a time of prayer every Sunday morning? Yeah. But I'm not happy with eight people coming. I'm really not. I'd rather have the early morning prayer time, a time where we see the entire church on their knees praying before God. And I would ask you to look in your own heart and say, what's my excuse for not being able to pray with the church? So well, it's, it's a timing. Well, you know what? You make time for what's really important, my friend, honestly. You know, if there's a worship concert tonight and it was at a certain time, you'd make the effort to make sure you get out to do that. So I'm just challenging you from my heart to your heart as your pastor. I want to encourage you to meet and pray with us. You say, well, I, I can pray anywhere. I, I get that. But the message of the New Testament is all of us corporately praying together. Look at your schedule and say, what can I be doing differently so that I could join the church in prayer? But then, I, then I, I've heard the excuses. I don't know how to pray out loud. I'm just really embarrassed. Well, that's fine. That's cool. Just come and pray anyways. I pray quietly. We're not going to force you to pray and beat you if you don't pray. That doesn't happen. We just want to encourage the body of Christ to come together and pray. 
Because this whole church, as we know, the 55, 60 people that are in this church would get together on a regular basis and start praying. Do you think God would move in a greater way? So that's the challenge. That's the challenge. What if we problem coming up with money for chairs? Hey, praise God. All chairs paid for, done. When it comes to putting money down, people can do that. But why is it so easy to get you to give money to God, but when it comes to prayer to God, that's a, a bigger challenge? Hmm, interesting. See, the one concern, says Samuel Chaddock, of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, and prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks at our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. Ask God, what can I do, Lord, to increase my prayer life? Or I could pray, hey, Lord, send some more persecution, then we'll get really pray. So what do you want? More persecution? Or just a heart that says, yes, Lord, I want to pray with this church for what God wants to do in this community. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your word to our hearts. Lord, indeed, a huge challenge. But Father, I just pray that each one of us would make corporate prayer a priority. Because Lord, we want to honor you and as a church to meet together, to pray together. Lord, to bring honor and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, when the New Testament church prayed, Lord, you came down, you, you did some fantastic things. Help us, Lord, not to be always limited by our lack of prayerlessness, but Lord, that you place upon our hearts a heart for prayer. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.